ever noticed how people sometimes change in times of crisis? That's really an understatement. Some people really go through radical change in times of crisis. A really nice person can become impossible to deal with when they're going through a disaster. Normally calm person can become hysterical. <clears throat> I remember uh, an incident some years ago when uh, <clears throat> my family was living next door to this other family that uh, w was a couple with uh, one young child. And the couple, they were, I, we would call them yuppies or upward climbers, right? He sold luxury cars and uh, they felt like they were luxury people. They did not see themselves to be on a social plane with us. We were kind of, you know, the trash next door, you might say. Until one day when that woman from next door came and didn't even knock, just burst into our living room, carrying her child, who was screaming, by the way, and started saying, what do I do? What do I do? Of course, we had to try to figure out what had happened before we could tell him what to do. But her son apparently had pulled a pan of hot water off the stove, and it spilled down his front, and he was burned. And she had no, she didn't, she didn't do anything herself. She had no idea what to do. She was so hysterical, she didn't, she didn't take any action herself. So one of us ran to call 911, and I think I ran and got some cold water to start, try to cool the, the burned area. And suddenly I noticed this whole social status uh, dis disequilibrium was gone. We were on a perfectly equal plane. Why? Because the welfare of her son was at stake. And there's nothing that uh, par parallels that. So she was perfectly willing to associate with us in those uh, <coughs> circumstances. <coughs> Sometimes you don't really know what a person's like until hard times, really hard times, hit their life. I used to counsel couples and said, uh, say something like, don't marry that person until you see how they handle a difficult situation. Because someone can act so sweet and, and like the per perfect person you want to be with until something happens. And then they totally change their character and their true colors come out. And it's important to see people in both situations. Last week we looked at the life, or last hour, we looked at the life of Abram before he was renamed Abraham. <clears throat> He's important because he, Scripture sets him up as, the, as a supreme example of one who trusted in God for his salvation. And Paul talks about him in the book of Romans as, the, as a great example of faith. And faith is not belief, right? It includes belief. But faith is more than belief. It's trust. And it was Abraham's trust, Abraham's trust, that made him different. I believe that Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, but I've never had a trusting relationship with Abraham Lincoln. Abraham, the father of faith, had a trust relationship with God. So we read about him in Genesis chapter 14. There's a reason starting in verse 8, as I mentioned, all of those names. I still had a lot of them, did you notice? <clears throat> See what happens in a time of crisis? <laughs> One of the tests of genuine faith is that faith includes that element of trust 
also faith moves us, based on that element of trust, moves us to a action. Abram's faith wouldn't have meant anything. Wouldn't have been, wouldn't have amounted to a hill of beans, as they used to say where I grew up, <clears throat> if it hadn't been an act of faith. What good would it have done if God said, Abram, I've got this beautiful land for you. You're gonna, your family's going to become a great nation, uh, but you've got you've to you've do something. And Abram just sat where he was. In fact, James tells us, as he comments on Abram, Abraham, in James chapter 2, after saying faith without works is worthless, he goes on to specifically use Abraham as an example. Verse 21 of James 2 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? We haven't gotten to that story, but you remember. God called him to offer his son, and he went and did that. <clears throat> you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And scripture was fulfilled with that combination, right? When it says Abraham believed, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called <clears throat> the friend of God. You first read that passage, if you're like me, you start, you start thinking, well, this sounds a little bit different from what Paul teaches about faith and works, that we're justified by faith, by, by grace through faith, without our works. Paul's very clear about that. And yet, Paul never meant or intended to communicate that our faith should ever be without works because the two really do go together. So the question of how to reconcile Paul and James has been a great theological debate of the time. Um, but I believe that Paul is correct. <laughs> We're saved. We are justified. We're declared righteous by God by grace, through faith alone, without works. And yet the faith that <clears throat> justifies, the faith that saves, always is accompanied by works. So James is no less correct. If Abraham had never expressed his faith, the promises of God would never have been fulfilled in his life. So James Kennedy, in his book Evangelism Explosion, some of you may remember that, not as popular today as it once was, but it was a training manual for reaching other people for Christ. He gives a great illustration in there of a fellow named Charles Blondin. Blondin was a great tightrope walk, tight walker of the 19th century. First one, in fact, <clears throat> in history to have crossed Niagara Falls on a tightrope. <clears throat> Amazing. <clears throat> Here's what Kennedy writes about Blondin. Blondin made many trips across the gorge and became popularly known as the Prince of Manila. The rope that he walked on apparently was made of Manila <clears throat> material. Each time he thrilled larger crowds with more exciting acts. He balanced a chair on the rope. He stood on the chair. He took pictures of the crowd while he's balanced on the rope. He cooked a meal in a small portable cooker and lowered it down to amazing passers-by. He crossed blindfolded. He crossed in a sack. He crossed on stilts and trundling a wheelbarrow. Well, in 1859, he increased the risk by carrying his manager. I wouldn't want to be his manager. 
Harry Calcord across on his back. And when the Prince of Wales visited in 1860, Blondin carried his assistant, Romaine Mouton, across and performed antics on the way. The prince, like other spectators, was breathless and asked Blondin never to try that again. <clears throat> Imagine the prince's reaction when Blondin offered, Blondin offered to carry the prince in his wheelbarrow across the gorge. As you might guess, the prince refused. And yeah, he believed in Blondin, knew he was a great tightrope walker, but he <clears throat> probably confident he could carry others safely across the gorge. He had seen it, but he wasn't willing to get in the wheelbarrow himself. He didn't trust Blondin that much. See, faith, that's the difference, isn't it, between faith or belief, you might say, and trust. Faith is different. It has that element of trust. It's one thing to say, I believe Christ can get me across the gorge of this life and into heaven. It's another thing to get in the wheelbarrow and really become his servant and his follower, especially when that means that you will be ridiculed or whatever. So what was the crisis in Abram's life? Abram believed and Abram followed. Time and again, his faith was tried and it was proven in action. And this time it was a region at war. One of the greatest trials of faith that he ever experienced came in, in this chapter. The first seven verses have the background history, but just to summarize that since we didn't read it, <clears throat> there are uh, <clears throat> four kings from the east who traveled west to make war with four, five kings of the west. <clears throat> in the early days of Sodom and Gomorrah, just east of Canaan, where Abram had settled his, uh, or, or west of there with his ranching operations. These five kings had been under the thumb of the four kings from the east, and they were charging them a fairly stiff tribute that the, that the five western kings suddenly refused to pay. We're not paying it anymore. Of course, that uh, prompted a quick response. So this eastern coalition came against the five cities that were standing close together in the plain of Jordan, including Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, and Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, Bela, that is Zoar. So these city kings, and you need to think of them not in terms of like a British kingdom or, a, you know, some kind of medieval kingdom. These were little, little, um, more like a, a chief of, a, of a, uh, a smaller group of people. Not huge, huge armies, but, but threatening nonetheless. <clears throat> Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, are a little more familiar to us. Later destroyed by God for their perversion and wickedness. But before that, remember, we just read about it in the last hour, Abram's nephew had gone to live close to them. He's also a rancher. Lot is with, a huge, with huge holdings of animals and so on. Um, and he moved towards Sodom even though he knew that that city had a great reputation for being immoral. What's ironic is that Sodom, is that as Lot went back to live there even after this incident, but... <clears throat> So Abram himself was not directly impacted. He didn't live right in that area. 
but it's part of a larger community, and more than that, his family's in jeopardy. <clears throat> so one of the great outcomes of this clash of city kings is, is found in verses 10 through 11, uh, and that is the Valley of Sidim is full of bitumen pits, and these kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the smaller force of the five kings, some of them fell into those pits, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions, verse 11, of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. It was a devastating uh, time for those folks. So the next verse, verse 12, is a critical verse because it directly shows what impact this whole thing had on Abram. Verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way. Now, Abram could have said, hey, let Lot chose his bed, let him sleep in it, right? Lot chose to move toward those sinful people, and uh, now he's got to take care of himself. Matthew Henry comments in this way in his commentary, many an honest man fares the worst for, the, for his wicked neighbors. If Lot chose to dwell in Sodom, he must thank himself if he shares in Sodom's calamities. Now, <clears throat> that, that's, not, that's not Matthew Henry's highest opinion. He does support Abram in his effort to go and rescue them. But that could have been his attitude, couldn't it? You know, he, he, made, his, he made his choice. He's got to take care of himself. But for Abram, this was a crisis of major proportions. This was family. And he felt a great responsibility. You know, he'd raised, not, uh, since his brother died, he'd raised a lot as his own nephew, and Lot really was a part of his family. So in every one of our lives, these kinds of moments of great crisis will come. Count on it. <laughs> if it hasn't yet, it will. Moments of great crisis. Every time I hear an interview with a great person, you know, on TV or whatever, I know what's coming, almost invariably. If they're allowed to tell their story, they're going to tell you about the difficulties they've had to overcome. And sometimes those difficulties are significant. Things that would crush other people. The person who has attained greatness has attained that because they've been able to find a way through those difficulties. So those moments when you realize those crisis moments, you can't sit on the fence anymore. If your faith means anything, you have to take a stand. You need to take action. And Abram's faith said, I've got to do something about this. I can't just let it go. So trusting God on the one hand and taking action on the other are not opposed in any way. They're, they're two sides of the same coin, you might say. One side saves, but the other side always accompanies that salvation. I remember when Moses was standing on the shore of the Red Sea. They had just left Egypt. The Egyptian army is coming after them, and they were a great force. I love the story, although I'd never want to be in, in his shoes. But if you turn back from Genesis 14 to Exodus 14, flip over real quick, because this is, a, this is a, a passage to remember in the life of, Gen uh, of uh, Moses. 
And then look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Can you hear these words booming, right? Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. You can see Charlton Heston or somebody out there, right? Really booming, booming those words. <clears throat> for the Egyptians who you see, whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Wow. Mo- Moses is such a dramatic hero of faith in that whole section. Very brave. Standing on the seashore, ferocious army coming. And then what happens? Seems like the text is missing a little detail in there somewhere. Because you read verse 15, and what's happening? The Lord's rebuking Moses. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. It's like Moses had been standing boldly in front of the people, but then he stops and, and, and in effect says, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> I've boomed out this great promise, and now we're not moving. <clears throat> he, may have, he may have even been about to freeze up when God says, why are you standing here crying out to me? <clears throat> Everybody had somebody say, why are you praying? <clears throat> we hear people all the time. Do something about it. Don't just pray. Well, this time it's God. (laughs) Prayer is a good thing, but there's a time to move out. There are times when God said, okay, you've prayed about it, and now you need to go do something about it. So faith in action. And what was his action? Uh, Someone escaped and told him what was going on. And uh, so he gathers his 318 people. Now, I don't think... Since later, some of the uh, people of these neighboring cities, Mamre and others, where Abram was, also joined him. I don't think we can say necessarily that all 318 of them were ranchers. But probably most of them were. They're not warriors. They're not trained military people. They're people who are going to help their friend rescue his, in effect, even though it's his nephew, his child. not warriors, and yet willing to to take that action. How could Abram do that in the first place? Well, I think it's largely because he knew his life was not in the hands of of himself, not in his, his, his fate was not up to him, but his life was in the hands of God. I've been thinking recently about the school shooting in Uvalde that we're all familiar with Uvalde, Texas. And I know the investigation is still going on. I just heard about a, another person that got fired the other day. But it still seems clear that there were a whole lot of first responders there, police officers and others, for a long time before anyone went in to take down this shooter who had killed so many people. Would I have been the one to go in? Probably not, like that Border Patrol guy finally did. I hope so, but I don't know. So there's this strong connection between faith and courage. I know there's another kind of courage that I've also experienced when I was working with the Manhattan Beach 
police department in Southern California. I was a chaplain for them, but also a reserve officer, which meant I rode in a car with a real policeman, made arrests, and did all the stuff that real policemen do, even though I could only do that in the presence of another police officer. So we got a call one night, because I had to work <coughs> usually overnight shifts. Uh, we got a call about a man with a gun, and I think he had just held somebody up, and he was, and he, and he had fled toward this gas station. So we respond immediately to the gas station, several other cars also, and we're going to look for this guy, a man with a gun. Well, we're here creeping around corners cautiously, <laughs> trying not to get shot by this guy, and one of the other officers come, who was riding by himself come, rolls in, struts, jumps out of his car in plain view of everything, and just goes walking around in, 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 in the open looking for this guy with his gun out. We should have had John Wayne emblazoned on his name tag. I won't tell you his real name. <clears throat> courage just can be like that sometimes. Foolish courage. When it ought to be careful, it's acting a little bit too boldly. And John Wayne, ha unfortunately, has a reputation of representing that. And I'm there trembling, thinking, Lord, I don't know how this is going to come out, but I have a duty to perform, and I trust you for the outcome. And it turned out okay. And we love that story of little David facing big Goliath, right? <clears throat> David's not trained for, for warfare himself. So you have this conversation between David and Saul in 1 Samuel 17, a later part of the chapter, and David says to him, let no, man, let no man's heart fail because of him, this big, burly Philistine. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. <laughs> and King Saul's looking down at this little fella, David, young guy. You're not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him. You're just a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. But David says, your servant used to keep his sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, <clears throat> I took the lion uh, and took the uh, lamb from the flock. I went after him. I struck him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I struck him and killed him. And I think those things probably really happened. And David's just got this young kind of optimism about how this is all going to turn out. <clears throat> Your servant struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. That gets down to the nub of it, doesn't it? He's challenged God, the God I trust in. And so David says, the, the Lord who delivered me from the paw, paw of the lion and bear will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. I noticed King Saul at that point didn't say, great, David, go on, and I'll go with you, right? <laughs> Saul didn't have the eyes of faith that David did. David trusted the Lord to deliver him. And I believe God's not looking for Saul's today, those who have great faith that other people will take care of it, but those who are willing to step in and take action based on their their faith, people willing to get into Blondin's wheel, wheelbarrow. And I have no problem if, if Jesus were the, <laughs> the, 
the one leading the wheelbarrow, not Blondin. <clears throat> God's looking for Davids, little people who realize that faith that draws back and cowers in a corner is not faith, it's fear. Faith that's worth its salt has to take action. That's the critical lesson that Abram learned here. But Abram, Abram's trust was not without tactics. Abram didn't look at the numbers. He looked at the need, and he trusted God to meet the need. But with that in mind, he still formulated the, the simplest strategy in verse 15, if you're looking at Genesis 14. He divided his forces, he, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Now, that's a long way from where they were. And he brought back all the possessions, brought back his kinsman Lot and his possessions, and the women and the people. It was a hastily hatched plan involving the simple task tactics, right? We split up, we hit them from two sides, they don't know, they, they're not going to even know what hit them. And probably they were celebrating and not preparing for war. <laughs> Whatever the case, it was a great victory. But it took raw courage. Courage based not on, oh, I think I can do it based on God is my Lord. I've committed my life to him. I love Matthew Henry's comment, another one, another one from him. What could one family of husbandmen and shepherds do against armies of four princes who now came fresh from blood and victory? It was not a vanquished, but a victorious army that he was pursuing. <clears throat> Nor was he constrained by necessity to do this daring attempt by necessity, as for, <clears throat> um, so that all things, can, but moved by generosity, that is, so that all things considered, it was for everything I know, as great an instance of true courage as ever Alexander or Caesar were celebrated for. I think he's right. It took, it took a great deal of courage. But for Abram, it was resting his life in the hands of the Lord. We've seen that kind of courage Recently, we prayed for the nation of Ukraine. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, sometimes those discussions about Ukraine focus on the corruption. And there has been quite a bit of corruption in that government. I think they, were, they had it easy for a while. And, uh, and, and like our own country, um, when things are great, corruption can quickly creep, creep in. But who hasn't been impressed nonetheless with the incredible courage with which the Ukrainian people are defending their own country against this formidable, scary army. Hundreds dying every week, and yet they fight on for all they're worth. Why? Well, it's their home. And they, they're also convinced that they don't want to live again under the tyranny. Some of them remember that, that they lived under in the Soviet Union. <coughs> Well, if they will fight like that for their, own, for their own, how much more should we be brave and strong in fighting the Lord's battles, which generally will not be military in our lives <clears throat> when we put our full, full trust in him? I love uh, 1 Timothy 6.12. Timothy, by the way, when Paul writes to him, Timothy was a, was a timid guy. He was not like Paul. Paul, Paul would go anywhere, do anything. Timothy wasn't like that. He trembled. 
So Paul tells it in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. And then he says, take hold of eternal life. That's what God called you to when you confessed him as your Lord and Savior. He ends up by saying, I love that language. Take hold of eternal life. Don't sit by and wait for somebody to drop it in your lap. Paul's making critical distinction between, I think in his head at least, between three different aspects of salvation that we're aware of, right? We were saved in the past. God saved us once and for all. And we'll be saved in the future when God admits us into heaven. But right now we're being saved day by day. And that's that current salvation that uh, is, is, you know, winning personal battles one after one. That's what it's all about. Winning personal battles one after one. So Paul's talking about today. Don't sit back and be satisfied that God's given me heaven and someday I'll get there. <clears throat> Go out and take hold of it, he says. Take hold of eternal life. That's what Abram did. He knew it was a good chance he would uh, not return facing such a ferocious enemy. But he also knew, to put it in modern terms, to to live as Christ and to die as gain. And the outcome, of course, was not death, but fantastic for Abram and his ranchers as they faced that army. But I want to just touch quickly on a temptation that came Abram's way after, right after that. And it was, the, it was the opportunity to profit. Normally when someone would go out and perform that kind of rescue, they would expect to be paid. Paid for the service of the men that were with them, paid for any loss that they had, paid just for doing it, get some kind of profit from it. Uh, local people obviously were overjoyed. Rescuing Lot meant rescuing Lots of families as well. So on his way back, Abram meets two different kings. And again, we're talking about local kings, chiefs of local tribes, not, you know, the nation kings that we think about. The first was the king of Sodom, ruler where Abram's nephew moved into his territory. So verse 17 of Genesis 14, after his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer, And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley, verse 17. Naturally, the first thing he wanted to do was uh, to pay Abram. He's not a man of faith. After all, it was Abram and his men who had taken the risk. They rescued the people. So let's strike a deal. So if you jump a little forward to verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons... You take the stuff, take the goods for yourself. You earned it, you, you uh, rescued them, just let the people come back. He figures if Abram hadn't been intervened, he wouldn't even have the people, so, so uh, <clears throat> he deserves it. And, and we'd have to say he probably did, right, by, by earthly standards. So Alan Ross makes the, commentary, uh, makes the comment in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, this instant incident was a test of Abram's faith after a great victory. Bera, Sodom's king, offered a most appealing deal. But Abram wanted something far more enduring than possessions and wealth. He wanted the fulfillment of God's miraculous and enduring promise. 
faith looks beyond the riches of this world to the grander prospects God has in store. Abram wasn't in it for the money. He wasn't a mercenary. His guys weren't mercenaries. They were performing a rescue mission. So how does Abram answer him in verse 22? I've lifted my hand to the Lord. I've made a promise, in other words, that I wouldn't take a threat or sin. I'm not going to take any payment because you're going to turn around and say, well, I've made Abram rich. I think Abram is already rich anyway. But Abram says, in effect, this is between me and God. I've made a commitment to the Lord. I'm not doing this for the benefit I can get out of it. So the great thing about Abram, even at this early point in his life and in his faith, is he clearly understood the difference between living by faith and trying to make it his own way. God did it, and God gets the glory for, for enabling him to do it. Well, there's another king that he met, one that we are more familiar with because of the book of Hebrews, and that's the king named Melchizedek. <clears throat> He's a king priest, king of Salem, another small community that had a, a ruler, a chief over them. Verse 18, Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed, and blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. Man of faith. And he gave Abram a tenth of, <coughs> and Abram, that is, gave him a tenth of everything. Now these are important verses from a New Testament perspective because um, Melchizedek, not only a local king, but also a priest. Now there's been some discussion about exactly who this person was because there's not a lot revealed about him. Was he some kind of an angel? Um, was he, um, because Hebrews talks about him having no father or mother, no genealogy, no, no beginning of days recorded, no end of life recorded. And then he says, but resembling the Son of God, Hebrews 7.3, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And some people jump to the conclusion, well, therefore, Mel Melchizedek must not have been a real human. He was some kind of, you know, Superman. He was some kind of angel, or some even say he was Christ himself. <clears throat> I don't take that view. I think he was simply a man <laughs> that was the ruler over his people, but he was also a man of faith. He was a priest. He represented God to the people around him. <clears throat> but as far as the record is concerned, and that's what Hebrews is talking about, he w <clears throat> the record doesn't talk about his birth. It doesn't talk about his death. It doesn't talk about his pedigree. Why? Because the writer of Hebrews is contrasting him with Levitical priests who had to have that right pedigree or they couldn't be a priest. <clears throat> Later we're going to read about Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, <clears throat> the priest of Midian. We'll get into Exodus for that. He wasn't one of the pagan priests that would have been common in the, among the Midianites, but rather he was a priest of the eternal, true and eternal God, the living Lord of heaven and earth, and he would go on to become an important counselor to Moses. So uh, I believe that uh, Melchizedek was the same kind of king, king priest, priest of the most high God. <clears throat> but in, my, in uh, our concern for who this king priest was, we shouldn't 
miss the importance of what he did. He pronounces a blessing. Blessed be Abram of God most high. Most amazing, rather than expecting payment for what he's done, Abram gives a tenth of all to this priest. There was some debate about, well, did he give a tenth of other people's stuff or did he give a tenth of his own stuff? Calvin among them thinks Abram gave a tenth of his own property and I'm inclined to agree with them. But whatever the case, the the writer of Hebrews makes the point in chapter 7, how great was this man to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And what's his point? His point is that even all of the seed of Abraham, and that includes the, the Moses and, the, and all the Levitical tribes and the later priests of the law, <clears throat> were in effect inferior to this priest who had been appointed by God. To God be the glory, great things he has done. <clears throat> so if he'd had the same focus as the king of Salem, he would have said to Abraham, or it would have been easy for Abraham to say, this is our stuff. We fought it. We des- fought for it. We deserve it. I rescued my family members by my own strength and my own skill. I deserve payment. And that's the attitude I think a lot of people have today. They're out there conquering the world by their own ingenuity. They have no time or concern for God. So what does God often do? Takes the proud sinner and crushes him and shows him how he is unable to make it on his own and just how much he needs to be God, uh, needs God. Abram didn't need to be crushed. He'd already been crushed by God. He'd already found out he couldn't make it on his own. And what he really needed was God's grace and the deliverance by the power of God. No true man or woman of saving faith will ever get confused by that. I I don't think they will. To turn and start playing the independence game is foreign to people like that. God is the giver of all. Even my ability to respond to God is a gift of God. So what does Abram do? In his first act after victory, he offers his thanks to God by giving his tithe to the priest of God. H.C. Leopold, in his commentary on Genesis, says, This chapter throws a delightful sidelight on Abraham's character, Abram's character, more particularly on the faith of the patriarch. For it was a faith that made Abram both courageous and extremely considerate. I like that. Courageous, but also considerate. You can be both at the same time. It was a faith utterly selfless. And that's the point, right? Faith turns us away from ourselves, turns us back to God, and then turns us in service to others. Remember what Paul said to Timothy. Timothy the timid, right? Fight the good of fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Yes, it's a free gift, but it's a free gift you have to personally take hold of. 
When it comes to salvation, faith may be passive. We receive it. But when it comes to living on the basis of that salvation, that's the life that you grab hold of. You take the bull by the horn, so to speak. And Paul makes a lot of that in Romans 4 when he talks about Abraham. He says, if Abraham was justified by works in Romans 4 too, he's got something to boast about. And he could have come back boasting, you know, I deserve payment. What does scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abram believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So even though Abram was saved by faith alone, the faith that he had was never alone. It was a faith that took action. And our faith needs to be the same way, right? That's the obvious conclusion. We can't be armchair Christians. We have to be out there fighting the good fight of faith, taking hold of eternal life. Yeah, we already have it as a promise, but we have to take hold of it as a daily victory over the battles that we face. I think that's what the Lord wants to teach us from this passage today. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for, again, the example of Abram before he was Abraham, still growing in his faith. But uh, when it came to uh, the crisis moment in his life, uh, rather than showing him to be something other than what he professed, that crisis moment showed him to be who he truly was. And that was someone who not only completely trusted in you, but who was also completely committed to taking action to serve others and to save his family based on his trust in you. And I pray, Father, that when the crisis comes, because we know it will, that it will not show us to be some kind of hypocrite, someone who professes one thing, but then when push comes to shove, we act a completely different way. But our lives will be committed to you in such a depth of faith and trust that we would simply see our faith lived out in a, in a very vivid moment of truth just like it was in Abram's life. We thank you for him. But more than that, Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who not only forgives us, Lord, but uh, helps us through those battles because without your spirit, without the spirit of Christ in our lives, we could never hope for any victory in those battles. So we, we rely upon you even in those moments of crisis, Lord. Teach us that because we, don't, we don't, certainly don't have it perfectly right now. It's something we need to grow in every day as we uh, mature in you, as we grow up from being baby, baby Christians to being mature Christian adults who, who trust in you with all of our hearts. We pray in Christ's name.